0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so delighted to be joined today by Ruth Madievsky. She's the author of a best-selling poetry collection, Emergency Break. Her work appears in Harper's Bazaar, Guernica, and so many other publications, I'm not going to list them. She is a founding member of the Chiborashka Collective, a community of women and non-binary writers from the former Soviet Union. Originally from Moldova, she lives in LA, where she works as an HIV, and primary care pharmacist. And her debut novel is called All Night
1: Pharmacy. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, super, super stoked to be here. Huge fan of the pod. I have basically have all the episodes tattooed on my retinas and my brain. So Aww. super excited to talk to you.
0: Thank you. I'm super excited to talk to you. There there is so much to talk about with All Night Pharmacy. But I I think what I want to do is start with the very last line of the book and not of the novel itself, but of your (laughs) acknowledgments, Because the final line you write, thanks for spending time with my diasporic drama queens. Mm -hmm. And I love, I, I feel like we hear about drama queens a lot in in the novel and princesses and often in a negative way. And I feel like you're being affectionate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was interested in writing a book where the diasporic Experience, you know, kind of living between worlds, dealing with the legacy of intergenerational trauma, uh, specifically Soviet Jewish trauma was a big part of these characters arc, but also wasn't what the book was about Mm -hmm, per se. mm -hmm. You know, I really didn't want the book to be just an immigrant story or a queer coming of age story or an LA story. I was interested in having all of these things be a patchwork because I feel like all of us are more complicated than that. And yeah, so I I was thinking about them as diasporic drama Queens affectionately, especially because, you know, I was interested in how that historical trauma affects people who are several generations removed and, and, how in some ways our narrator has this, what feels like an unrepayable debt to her ancestors who brought her to this country for a better life. And she hasn't faced nearly the kind of, you know, state-sanctioned terror that they have, and yet finds herself imperiling herself constantly in these, you know, kind of unforced errors of putting her life at risk.
0: Absolutely. And it's so difficult to parse, and you make this very clear in the book, what is a personality trait versus what is a mental illness versus what is <laughs> <Relatable>. something larger? <laughs> what is addiction? And it's usually just a combination of of, of all those things, as we find out in all night pharmacy. I a, a, Another place I wanted to start before we really get into it is there's a throwaway line that made me wonder what your unnamed narrator is actually named. Don't tell me. Mm-hmm. But I have a hunch that she mentions at one point that there's a place in Hollywood where you could get a keychain with your name on it if your name is American enough. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that her name is not one that you can find.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's not. A few people have asked me why she's not named and you're the only one who's mentioned that line. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually don't know what her name is. It feels like she was a little bit too much of a cipher during the writing process and so in search of an identity of her own that to pin her down with a name like Caroline or something just like feels completely impossible. Um, (laughs) But I do have this idea that she has a name that's kind of, you know, probably not, it's not like Svitlana, you know, but, but it's, but it's also not like Marianne, like something a little bit, (laughs) something, something a little bit Jewish, maybe a little bit Soviet, but yeah, I don't know what it is. Actually, Oteza Moshevik has this amazing, uh, quote she gave in an interview where someone asked her why doesn't the narrator of my year in rest and relaxation have a name and she said like what the fuck was i going to call her jennifer <laughs> <laughs> i like really relate to that like literally what was she going to be gertrude
0: that's that's perfect and i do feel like this book in this book you kind of join the pantheon of novels about self-destructive young heroines
1: mm-hmm women behaving badly, favorite women genre.
0: behaving badly, which also happens to be the narrator's favorite genre.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mine too. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs>
0: so, so thanks. Um, so let's talk about salvation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It has a really, really specific vibe in this book. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell me how you conceived of the place, what you, what it looks like, what what it
1: smells like, all of that stuff. Yeah. Have you spent much time in L.A. before, Maris? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, L- L.A. has no shortage of like semi-cursed nightlife, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like, you, you know, you go to a bar or a club and there's parts of it that are like, oh, like, I love that chandelier. Oh, this is an amazing piece, go sour. But then it's like, why is that dog groomer like, feeding that obviously 15 year old mouthwash. Like there's just, there's just always something (laughs) like weird going on. I have found from, from kind of coming of age here. And, you know, I wanted to create this, this bar that was sort of like a refuge for these fuck ups who they know there's something incurably wrong with them, but they're here because they do not want to know what that thing is. Um, (laughs) And it's sort of a place where they can all be family under one roof where, it's almost like outside of regular society, like weird things are always going down, like, you know, the, I just pictured like the floors are always sticky, mm-hmm. you know, people are always hooking up with the wrong people in the bathroom. I, I had this throwaway line that I ended up getting rid of about where the narrator hooks up with some, some guy in the bathroom and cuts her lip on his like Star of David necklace. <laughs> And you know, there's a scene in the book where a nice is, Jewish
0: boy is what yeah, you're a saying. nice Jewish
1: boy, kind of. Um, yeah, and there's a scene in the book where someone is is you know feeding the a goat a beer, and then the goat starts making this horrible sound like a penny in a blender, and then that kind of ends quickly. So yeah, I think just from growing up here, I you know I have I haven't been to that bar specifically, but I imagine it as sort of an amalgam of different dives where all these people who are trying to fake it till they make it, while knowing they will actually never make it, kind of find refuge in each other's company kind of under the eyes of an apathetic god
0: damn and 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 of course when when we are taken along with the narrator to salvation it's because her older sister debbie has dressed her up Mm. and it seems
1: like a fun
0: girl's night out and then suddenly we realize that like mm, that's not the vibe we're gonna get here
1: (laughs) yeah and i think you know the narrator keeps agreeing to go out with her chaotic dominating older sister in the hopes that like maybe this is the time it'll just be a fun girls night out maybe we can be you know what quote unquote sisters are supposed to be like my older sister can kind of shepherd me through this life in a way that you know doesn't make me feel like a black hole the next day and we just never really she just never really gets that with her sister but just can't find herself cutting her loose
0: i i there's a line where the narrator says being debbie's sister was obliterating something like it was also the closest thing to knowing who I was.
1: Yeah, that's the exact line. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that that really sums it up. and and I I don't know. that feels really familiar to me that we often have someone who is just so larger than life that you're just kind of along for the ride. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And like, you know, you know that it's toxic and it might end with you maybe dead (laughs) or severely (laughs) traumatized, but it's kind of like, what would my life be without this person? It's a little terrifying to imagine it. And, you know, one, one thing I kind of realized late in the book is that while I don't have like a pithy thesis of the relationship between, you know, the Holocaust and why these characters are the way they are, it does feel like there is a relationship between the narrator and her sister losing relative to the Holocaust and to Soviet terror, and her inability to just become estranged from her sister. Like, I think there's this sense that we don't just cut off our living relatives, even if they're horrible. And I think a lot of immigrants probably understand that to some degree. And a lot of Jewish people probably understand that to some degree, this this hope that even if things are toxic, that you can't give up on that person, and that maybe things will get better eventually. And even Absolutely. if they don't, that's not the point of family.
0: Right, right. you they're they're here to torture you if that's what they're here to do and and, of course, you show that so beautifully with when we meet Debbie and the narrator's mother and her their grandmother, a manifestation of of some of that trauma is that their mother is incredibly paranoid. And, um the narrator might be.
1: Too, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her, her mom who grew up in America, but inherited all this family lore about, you know, her grandfather being murdered as an enemy of the state and, you know, the aunts and uncles that perished in Baba Yar, like she, she has this paranoia that kind of any day now things in the U S could turn and she needs to be ready to go at any time because the fire squad could be around the corner whenever. And it really makes her kind of incapable of functioning in society and the And the narrator, I think, is kind of terrified by this this kind of elusive whatever her her combination mental illnesses is, and also is terrified that that's coming for her too, that that's in her genes and that, um, you know, on the one hand, her enabling her mom is what helps her like survive because you can't really help someone like that see reality if they're not willing to to some degree but she also understands that enabling her is kind of toxic in its own way. And then just ends up with her spending more time with those illusions herself. And, you know, kind of wondering what her place is in digesting all this trauma around her that she didn't personally experience.
0: Absolutely. And, and there's even
1: the grandmother,
0: maybe she doesn't say it's described at one point that the grandmother thinks of the mother's disability as a, betrayal, because, of course, yeah. she was brought to this land of opportunity.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, just from talking to a lot of my friends who are also immigrants or children of immigrants, I think that there's that very real sense that, like, why do you need a therapist? And, like, embarrassment, <laughs> like, why are we on SSRIs? Why do we take benzos? Like, we we weren't the ones who, like, saw, saw our father get shot, you know? We weren't the ones who, you know, feared for our lives every day and were never allowed to go to a synagogue or you know, we're, you know, if if we had been queer in the Soviet Union would have just not had any life at all. And yet, like, why are we so why do we, you know, why do we seek out this help? And I think part of it is just that we're willing, we're willing to do it. Whereas, you know, those older generations, I'm sure could really, really benefit from it. But I think there is that kind of generational divide sometimes of like, why do you need so much help? Like, we're fine. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, are you fine, though? Are you?
0: And uh, yeah, when it's truly a matter of survival,
1: there's no time for therapy. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, like was there lexapro in Soviet era Moldova? I doubt it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of remember when kids at my temple would get bar mitzvah in the late 80s and early nineties, they'd they'd share their bar mitzvah with a Soviet Jew who couldn't oh, wow. make it out. That's really lovely. and so and so even you know we were all a bunch of drama queens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like a, a nice reminder that we did have many problems, but we were lucky in many respects. <laughs> but I love the idea and, and I don't wanna jump too far ahead, but a narrator begins to work in an ER, she's used to dealing with so many emergencies, catastrophes. But one of the people who shows up is just a woman who is dealing with Shoah grief. She says that uh, as Jews, we all carry this grief. Mm-hmm. Tell me about inventing that character who is so blatantly a symbol of of, of <laughs> the, the kind of mental stuff that, that yeah. the narrator is going through.
1: Yeah. So I was chatting with a friend a few years ago whose grandparents are Holocaust survivors. And she was telling me that for her parents growing up in a home as children of Holocaust survivors or for her mom specifically, that it was really, it was this really hard thing where like we all, you know, I think all of us who kind of had a, enough of a mainstream education to know the history of the Holocaust, we know, we know so many just like lurid, horrible details and and statistics and about what went down. But for this friend, her her grandparents never ever spoke of it, but it but clearly their experiences modulated every single thing that ever went down in that home. And so her mom grew up with this like unspeakable absence that was like a huge presence in their house, nonetheless. And so everything kind of was in relation to that history of, of surviving the Holocaust, but it was never discussed explicitly. And my friend was talking about like, you know, what that was like for her mom to grow up in a home like that, and then what it was like for her to be raised by a mom who grew up in a home like that. Um, And that was the first time I really thought she I think she used the word show a grief. And that was the first time I really thought about, Mm -hmm. like, you know, how something like that would affect people several generations removed and not just in, you know, kind of the the very zeitgeisty way of talking about, like, you know, epigenetics and, you Mm -hmm. know, the rats who were shocked when they smell cherry blossoms and generations later, they still react that way when they smell it. Like, for me, this felt a lot more personal. And um, I was thinking about how sticky traumas like that can be and how you probably could never summarize in words how your family living through that affects why you are the way you are but that I am sure that for many of us we are living in response to those things.
0: We are expected to make all of the right choices uh, Mm -hmm. and do our ancestors proud and sometimes reading this novel I felt like yelling at
1: the narrator like, what do
0: you do <laughs> tell me about that self-destructive impulse
1: yeah so I think that partly in relation to these traumas that she doesn't know what to do with she kind of acts out in her own way by you know seeking this chaos that she feels like is in her blood and her history and you know a big part of it is that she doesn't know who she is she's too afraid to find out you know she feels like she's canvas and her chaotic sister Debbie is the artist and she finds herself, you know, being dragged along on these very cursed adventures with Debbie. And when Debbie, you know, spoiler alert, but not really spoiler alert, disappears pretty early on, the narrator has a chance to reinvent herself. But instead, she kind of just doubles down on the life she was living with Debbie and sort of replaces who the Debbie figure in her own life, you know, so she gets embroiled in a bunch of prescription drug schemes involving, you know, paying unhoused people to, fill fraudulent prescriptions at pharmacies and then pay them for the, for the pills so that she can sell later uh, when she works in the emergency room, which becomes another way of her to seek chaos at all times by having just kind of this revolving door of people having the worst day of their life in front of her. Um, When she gets that job, she comes up with some scheme to uh, steal and sell the expiring opioids and benzos that were just going to be thrown out anyway um, so it's 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 this craftiness, right? Like it's this craftiness and kind of scrappy survival mechanism that was probably in her relatives who survived, uh, but she's you know using it for really really nefarious curse things that are horrible for her. Um, and you know I think that she's so much more privileged than her relatives were, and that nothing is really there's nothing that's really imperiling her ability to live except for herself, and her privilege is both. She I think she thinks of it as a blessing in some ways because, you know, she kind of um, she kind of uses her whiteness as a cudgel to get, you know, access to pills in ways mm-hmm. that, you know, she I think doctors trust her a lot more than they might someone else. And she weaponizes that, you know, she is able to get these like massive numbers of benzo prescriptions because she looks good in a cardigan <laughs> and looks respectable. <laughs> um so in that way, she's able to use her privilege, what she thinks of to better herself, but really it's what's keeping her down and just you know bringing her closer and closer to the edge
0: absolutely
1: and and if we're talking about
0: the post debbie world, it's also really compelling to think of like i I always think of someone who is an addict as someone who like who could move from one thing to another mm-hmm. And when Debbie is gone, there there is a hole. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a bunch of things that, that the narrator tries to fill that hole with. But I'm mostly, of course, interested in talking a little bit about Sasha. Mm-hmm. Who kind of shows up and kind of turns the novel upside down, even though we're kind of familiar with what the narrator is doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Sasha is this kind of mysterious alluring woman who shows up to the ER where the narrator's working and she says, I'm your amulet. You know, I'm here to put you back on the path that the universe wants you on. And, you know, it sounds like complete bullshit, but it also sounds like exactly what someone in LA would tell you. (laughs) Uh, Like, like, like how many amulets have I met just sitting at a bar in silver? Like, you know what I mean? And, you know, there's this sort of, sexual chemistry between them, but also Sasha's there to be her spiritual guide. The power dynamics are weird. Um, Sasha is this, you know, Soviet refugee who claims to be psychic. Is she really psychic? You know, question mark. And, you know, in some ways she helps the narrator tap into a lot of what her true personality is and encourages her to finally act on her own agency. In other ways, she's kind of a replacement for just another person to tell the narrator what to do. Um, but, you know, one. but she also helps the narrator explore her queerness, which was something that was always kind of always there from the start of the book, but a little more mm-hmm. subdued in the beginning. And she helps the narrator tap into, you know, some of that diasporic angst that she has never really thought of in that way. Um and, I mean, she's also just, like, I think a very funny person, sometimes unintentionally so, like, the way that they just waste hours watching, like, really toxic Russian daytime talk shows about, like, 19-year-olds who fuck 85-year-olds, like, allegedly <laughs> for love, and their moms who come on the show and just cry and cry. It does sound
0: every like uh, the good old days of Jerry Springer kind of. Uh, That's literally what Russian TV is. Like, I really grew up with that in the background. Amazing. And towards the end of the book and i don't want to we're not giving too much away here but we know so little about sasha in terms of personal details but both the narrator and we the reader are taken along as as sasha returns to moldova and i'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can tell me all about writing that portion of the book
1: yeah so the book started out as a linked short story collection Mm. and then yeah yeah and parts one and two of the book those were the short stories that i then fleshed out really intensely but an agent who had reached out to me years earlier um had thought it might work better as a novel and at first i was like well you would say that they're easier to sell but like they were they were totally right like the stories really weren't more than the sum of their parts um and this common theme in the stories was that there's this mysterious spiritual amulet, Sasha, and there's this missing older sister. But when I sat down to write it as a novel, when I started writing part three, after all the short stories ended, I had no idea where to go with it. But I had just been to Moldova for the first time since immigrating when I was two. Um, mm-hmm. I had gone with my parents on a very different trip than the kind that the narrator goes on. Um and that my trip was a lot less of like a fuck fest and was a lot more of, of like an exploring <laughs> <laughs> your family background uh, kind of thing. I just started writing about that trip. And the itinerary that the narrator takes in the book is basically my trip. We spent a lot of time in the Jewish cemetery, which was exactly as like, unrelatably grim as I describe, where it's just broken headstones, weeds everywhere. Just the sense that everyone there is forgotten. Um We saw the apartment where my family lived before we moved here. We saw the hospital where I was born. You know, I heard the most ridiculous family stories, a lot of which made their way into the book. Um, And so that section really became a way of being a cultural custodian for this family lore that I am always afraid is going to get lost and that I'm sure the versions that I put in are already completely wrong because the people who experienced it, some of them are long gone. And so I'm just kind of playing the game of you know diasporic telephone and trying to write down what I can, which feels important to memorialize it, but also feels a little bit ethically dubious to kind of, you know, sell a book off the backs of traumas that I didn't experience. But I'd like to think that the relatives would be proud and or at least be happy to see their stories somewhere. Absolutely. And it's it's fiction for a reason. It is. Yeah. And and it's not, it's those family stories aren't exactly the way that they happened to my knowledge, but you know, writing that section, I think, helped me process a lot of my thorny feelings about the trip. Um, and I think it helped take the novel from what was at first just a sisterhood and addiction and an L.A. Mm-hmm. story into something that felt more honest to me. Absolutely. I'm wondering if, and
0: this is a hard thing to ask about and to talk about. I don't mean hard, like, emotionally. I just mean, you might not have much that you want to say, but I want to ask you, the metaphors in this book are just mm-hmm. so vivid and wonderful and kind of shocking. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little, like, how do you get your ideas? Mm-hmm. But um...
1: yeah, well, well, thank you for saying that. 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 Like hearing that, that's like my favorite piece of feedback because you know, I come from a poetry background and it was so hard to let this book go because I just wanted to shine every single word, you know, and I wanted the whole book to just be a book of bangers, you know, just like an album with no skips. Every (laughs) line has to be like really muscly. It has to be, you know, arresting and, and or darkly funny. Like there has to be something going for every line, which, you know, involved a lot of editing some of that down because it gets really exhausting. If everything's at a hundred, you know, you have to have some senses that are like, he opened the door, um, <laughs> but.
0: Although I yeah. I feel like you actually do get to skip some of those in between connecting sentences <laughs> and it's still, it, it's, that's refreshing too.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I, I tried. I mean, I, yeah, I think just because of my poetry background, I couldn't help it. Like I wanted every line to be a banger. I, you know, I wrote the novel the way that I write poems, which was no outline, just kind of writing in pursuit of beauty and truth, which I know sounds very like schmaltzy, but that's really how I think of it is just trying to (laughs) trying to hit on something that captures what it feels like to be alive. And I feel like what it feels like to be alive is to have these really hyper specific um, details that make that make a book feel like, oh, this was written by a person who lives in the world. Um, You know, so I have I mean, a lot of becomes what becomes more and from-
0: more important as uh, AI comes to take our, our yes. jobs away.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, so it's not just lights; it's surgical lights. You know, it's um, cough drops and iguanas named Apples who are on Lexapro. You know, that specificity for me is what <laughs> I love to read about. Bread dip-
0: dipped in Lexapro mush.
1: Yeah, Incredible. you know, you know, my mom is a is a pharmacist also and she does compounding and she has a lot of veterinary patients who are <laughs> you know, little, little little animals with names like Peewee who are on SSRIs. So <laughs> the calls coming and, from inside the house.
0: And so tell me just a little bit about being a pharmacist writing about both the narrator's job in the ER but also her abuse of prescription drugs throughout the book
1: yeah so I mean I knew that there were going to be scams in the book (laughs) because I love reading about scammers and grifters and as much as I love like the archive and I love books about the archive I'm not someone who has it in me to like you know educate myself on the esoterica of how to do a scam in a field I don't understand. Sure. Whereas with pharmacy, because I know the laws around opioid prescribing and things like that, I felt like I could concoct some believable scams around how a person would be able to game these systems, how someone could, you know, commit some some light to moderate Medicare fraud by selling their grandparents unused pain pills, but then using that money to buy them nice furniture, heart you know, we, we, we I love, love we love a, a devoted diasporic scammer um, <laughs> and yeah, for, from having spent some time rotating through emergency rooms and even just, you know, when I worked in a hospital as a pharmacist, we would respond to code blues. So I would, when someone would have like a cardiac arrest or a respiratory arrest, I would go wherever they were sometimes to the ER to help out from a pharmacy perspective. So I've kind of seen how those places function and yeah, it just it kind of felt natural to let my day job inform the novel. Um and just and just from my work, I you know, I I understand the mechanisms of substance dependence and I've I've helped some people taper off of benzodiazepines, so and I know how just absolutely brutal that can be and the different forces that can lead to a dependence through no fault or intention of the person who ends up there. Um and so I was int- I mean, obviously our narrator bears some responsibility because of the way that she kind of courts chaos. But there's also all these forces that make it easy for her, like the way that because she's a young 20 something white woman, everyone just instinctively trusts her and gives her whatever pills she asks for. Absolutely.
0: And, and, And I do think maybe we can, we'll end on this. It was interesting to me to hear you say that the narrator took this job in the ER because she sought chaos. Because Mm -hmm. there, there also seems to be something like, I feel like I know her a little more because not every person can do this job. It's, Mm -hmm. it's tough and she has to have many qualities that are positive that, that, that make this job bearable for her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of an ordered chaos, right? Like there, there is a logic Mm -hmm. to it Mm -hmm. and ultimately everyone who's there, they're having, you know for some of them the worst day of their life, but they're gonna get help. And, you know, it allows the narrator to help people, but also, you know, she can still express that, you know, kind of secretly disgusting, bitchy part of herself. Like there's a point where, you know, some some character gets transferred to the ICU with like a tube down their throat and up their urethra and she and she thinks of that in her head as spit roasting. <laughs> like so vulgar. <laughs> Horrible. Keep that thought in your head. But this is a place Horrible. where she can you know, be herself while also helping people um, and kind of see a mechanism for having us having that sense of thrill in her life, but without imperiling herself at the bar. That absolutely makes sense. Ruth, thank you so
0: much. Before we wrap up, please recommend some books for
1: us. I would love to. So I recently read Ben Perkert's forthcoming novel, The Men Can't Be Saved. Do you have an arc of that one? Yes, I do. It's very 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 good. Um it's it's about this kind of lowly copywriter named Seth who gets he has a kind of like a one-hit wonder career hit and then he gets laid off and he kind of falls into a prescription drug dependence and seeks counsel from this rabbi figure, clearly no relationship to the themes of my book. <laughs> Definitely not not a reason I like it. Um but it's it's very funny, it's dark, it's an amazing kind of satire of toxic masculinity that and i are actually reading together at harvard books on august 3rd and i'm very excited because i feel like our books have a lot of they're kind of like i feel like they would have been friends at jew camp <laughs> and then a book of poetry that i'm constantly rereading is uh not here by human Nguyen. he was just an incredible lyric poet where the poems are about um you know they're kind of about dealing with historical traumas i believe he's Vietnamese american they have to do with you know kind of fraught family dynamics especially around you know growing up in america as a queer man they are about you know the body and ecstasy the body and trauma they're also very funny and they have these like incredibly arresting images like there's this one poem that involves i forget the exact mechanism of it but it involves a hawk being like beheaded with like a drone or something and then the head of the hawk just like bzz, 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 like flying around. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so to answer your question about where I get my metaphors from a lot of it comes from just reading people who are very voicey who you know know how to harness these like incredibly evocative images yeah and just kind of trying to do what they do so not here by human win a banger of a poetry collection
0: amazing and all night pharmacy is out now thanks so much Ruth. Mar- thank you so much Maris